If today is feeling a little bit different in terms of our pace, that's because it is. We are moving more of what would normally be in the front of our service to the back, and that's because there is a wedding that is happening, and I'd like to catch up to it a little bit, so... We, the elders gave me permission. Um, I guess that's the way the conversation went. I said, guys, I'm going to preach a little earlier in the sermon. And they said, oh, or in the service. And they said, okay. So here we are. But let's pray before we open God's word together. Father, there is much happening today. Some of it, like a wedding, is something that's anticipated and planned for. And it's something to rejoice in. There are other things happening today, though, Lord. Things that we didn't plan for. Things that move from broken guitar strings to sicknesses and other absences here from church. And, Lord, we pray across the congregation. Lord, for those who are rejoicing today and those who are suffering today. Those whose absences were planned and those whose absences are unexpected. Lord, we pray, Lord, that whatever is happening today would be met by your grace. But Lord, beyond all that, there is something else happening today that you desire to meet with and to address your people from your word. Every time we open your word, we feel how somber this is, how serious it is and yet lord how joyful it is because you could have left us alone you could have left us in the ignorance in our ignorance and left us in the dark and you didn't you came to us and you continue to meet us by shining light into our darkness and so we pray that you would do that same thing right now that you would illuminate your word that you would open our eyes to see your word and that the light who jesus is the light of your glory would shine on our hearts so that we could once again know grace and truth. Thank you, Lord, that though it is dark, the light is continuing to shine. Thank you for the promise that the darkness will never overcome what we are about to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hydration, hydration, hydration. Today will be a bit of a marathon, so... Let me ask you this question. How do you rank a good villain in a movie? Hmm, that's a good question, isn't it? The, the question that I'm asking probably gets your answer to that question, probably gets beyond the sense of maybe the CGI that they throw at them or something along those lines if you're into some sort of a fantasy or into some sort of, uh, you know, animated kind of villain maybe your answer would probably go a little bit more to if you're into something a little darker you want to see somebody who is motivated or doing some really scary stuff that's what makes a good villain regardless of how you answer kind of those questions one of the things that i think makes villains really hollow in movies is when there's no backstory no sense of why they're bad. You just encounter them and they're automatically bad. You get nothing to really tell the story of why they're motivated to do this kind of dark deed that the heroes and heroines are, are preventing. There's no tension 
to the villain. And so there's no real problem that makes him kind of relatable. If you thought through kind of what Marvel's been doing lately, if you follow kind of that universe, they have a lot of forgettable villains. None of them really match Thanos, who in some ways has his own kind of like fanboy group in the internet of people who were saying, you know, Thanos wasn't really wrong. He had, he had some good points. I think he was a genocidal maniac, but oh yeah, but he had some good points. It's, it's that kind of drama, that kind of relatability at times. It's what always makes it very difficult for me when we approach Christmas and I'm going to try and gather the family around and we're going to watch the Muppet Christmas Carol together. The best version of what Dickens presented in literary form set to film has been done by the Muppets. And so every Christmas time, we're going to come around. But here's one of the hard things about Dickens. I don't know anybody like Tiny Tim. Somebody who's purely good, golden, everything is always right. And I know nobody like Scrooge, somebody who is just dark and heartless. And I know nobody like who Scrooge becomes at the very end, right? Like it's this, this weird, unrelatable sense of the way he writes his characters where you think, no, man, I, I can't quite get there. Now, let me ask you this question. If I had to ask you, what is the one thing you want that if you could get it might tempt you toward your own personal villainy? I don't think that's so hypothetical a question. I think most of the time that we struggle in life, most of the time that we stray, most of the time that we find ourselves going down a dark path that we swore we were never going to go down again, it's because something about that deepest longing, that greatest desire, if I said, as for you, what do you want? Your answer to that question is probably what moves you and makes you your own kind of worst version of yourself. It's the thing that leads people down paths of them becoming somebody that others kind of have to fight against at times. I know that what happens at, at times in our family, I'll, I'll be talking to one of the kids and something of my own personal villainy kind of shows up in it. I feel disrespected. Not that my kids are tremendously disrespectful. It's just I'm kind of fragile and my ego gets dinged a lot. And so then I kind of rise up and, and Christine notices like, wow, villain Darren is kind of coming into the story. You were kind of nice and relatable and we were enjoying this conversation. And now there's this weird energy coming from you. It's happened at times when I've been with the elders and we're talking about things and it gets more serious. And all of a sudden Darren's like, not Darren. It's like, Darren. Oh, we need, we need to have a hero rise up in this conversation and oppose the villain who's just entered. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it's because if you were to ask me at those moments, as for you, Darren, what do you want the most? Or if you ask James when he's writing his letter and he gets to chapter four, what causes quiet fights and what causes quarrels among you? James' answer is it's that desire. It's that thing you want. It's that, it's that longing that you've turned from desiring and you've let it become something you're coveting. That's what moves you from wanting something to killing to get it. That's what moves a moment like in Genesis chapter 4 where we have two brothers 
Both of them seem to want this good thing to be approved of by God. One of them gets it, one of them doesn't. And it leads to death. That's the moment James is pointing back to. And it's not just historical. These are, these are present tense, kind of villainous moments for us where if somebody asks you, what is it you really, really want? I'm motivated by a bunch of different things. We're going to try and use that ultimate question and, and let that be what we do over Christmas for these next three weeks. We're, talk, we're calling this series Previews of a Coming Attraction. And in the beginning, as I was kind of thinking about it, I was going to take a bunch of prophetic texts and we were going to look at that. And we've, we've done that in the past. What I wanted to do instead is to look back over the story of the Bible, but to do it kind of in three passes and ask three questions of what is it that we really most deeply want in life? And how does the Bible show that the, the moments of that being fulfilled or hinted at, the echoes of it in the Old Testament really landed in the person of Jesus? And it's that moment that should make us appreciate Christmas a little bit more. So unpacking the series a little bit, I hope that makes sense. The first thing that I think people deeply want, that I know I want, is reflected in the passage that Curtis read for us, where we read, as for me, it is good to be near God. I think the longing for the presence of God, that longing to be with God, to know that we're in the presence of the Almighty One, and we're legit okay. We don't have to be scared. We don't have to worry whether the, the king's going to extend the scepter or not, whether we're going to get killed because we've inadvertently come into his presence. But we're okay to come before God. I think that has been a biblical longing through the whole story, and I think it resonates in our hearts. And I think in various ways, when it's not fulfilled, there's a certain path we can go down because what we long for in God, we seek for elsewhere. And so trying to think this through a little bit, it, it's interesting the way that this passage is translated in different versions. The ESV says it is good to be near God. The, the CSB says, as for me, God's presence is my good. Or kind of my favorite old timey kind of version of one. I, I thought it was King James. It, it wasn't the King James. It's the New American Standard says, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Or if you got a little bit less literal, the CEV says, it is good to be near you, which, okay, that doesn't quite pack a punch as much. Or then there was this one, I'm in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing that is, which is not surprising. That was the message. So however you say it, I hope that, that as we're talking it through, you can kind of relate to that longing. We want to be with someone, and we want to feel safe around them. I remember the first time that motivated me. I moved a lot through elementary school, and I, that the first time I was very aware that I wasn't just going to be with people in this new set of, you know, in this new classroom and in this new group of friends that I had. I was coming in, and I was very aware I wanted to find the important people. I wanted to find, I probably wouldn't have had these words for it, but I wanted to find the cool kids. And I wanted to find out if I could be accepted by them. And here we are, years and years, decades later, and honestly, I'm not sure that that desire is fully left. 
But what I think that is, is I think it's an echo of this theme. We were made to be with the most powerful, the most glorious, and to be okay in his presence. And I think that theme shows up through five different snapshots. I'm going to try to make our way through them kind of quickly here this morning. The first snapshot comes out of Genesis 1 in the garden. Technically not Genesis 1. Genesis 1 tells the story of creation, but it's interesting the way that the story of creation is told in Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning of Genesis 1, everything is watery. It is oceans. It's just the, the earth is covered by the tumultuous waves and the chaos of the deep. And what does God do in Genesis 1? He forms land and safety up out of it, right? Genesis 2 tells a similar story because in the beginning, the, the, the earth is formless and void. Or as, as one is translated, a, a watery waste. And Genesis 1 tells the earth is this watery space that God brings land up out of and then brings life to the land. Genesis 2 we meet, though, and it's not that everything is covered by water. It's that everything is covered by desert. In the very beginning of Genesis 2, we read this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. You hear the desert spread over Genesis 2? What happens then? The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Lord God planted a garden in east, and in the east, there he put the man. So in the beginning, we need a setting. God creates a setting out of the desert, just like we get this sense then in reading Genesis 1 and 2. If you were adrift on a raft in the middle of the ocean, how would you feel? Kind of like Hey Hey from Moana, right? Just terrified by what's out there because there's no safe space for you. And God brings a safe space. Genesis chapter 2, you're in the middle of a desert. You've got nothing but mirages. And what does God do? He creates an oasis for you. That's, that's what happens. God creates a setting for people to live in. He places a representative of his own whom he breathed life into so that the invisible God can be represented on this planet that he is now bringing life to. He's bringing his ambassador to. And yet, it's not good quite yet because verse 18 says, The Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so, you know the story. He brings all the animals through and all the animals are paired off and all the animals are named. The man who is there as the representative, human beings are, or human being, is being the representative of God. He's taking lordship over creation, but there's no helper fit for Adam. And so God's declaration there, this isn't good. So it's not good that there's no setting. It's not good that there's no representative of God. And it's not good that there's no community of representatives. And yet, even in the midst of that, think of what God has done in two chapters. That's not enough. It's not enough that God creates safety in the midst of chaos. It's not enough that God brings a person in. It's not enough that God gives that person community. More is needed. And we don't get the sense of what really has been happening until it's lost. God sets up rules over this realm. The representatives break the rules. Adam and Eve standing in for the rest of us, doing what the rest of us would have done anyway, break the rules and are cast out of the garden, sent out 
terrifyingly off the island, back into the sea, so to speak, out of the garden, back out into the wilderness to fend for life on their own, now marked by the curse and marked by sin that they've brought into the world. But what else else is it that they're going to have lost? We read it here in chapter 7. After that happened, the eyes of them were opened. They knew they were naked. And here's what they lost. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then Moses describes it this way. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. What do we, what do we get out of this garden? We get a watery, a wasty land. God creates safety. God creates a community. He plants people in it. And he was spending time with them in the middle of that safe space he had made. There's so many blanks that aren't filled in in this story that we get curious to. How long did this take? What was life like? What, were, what was really going on in the midst of that? But what we know is by verse 8 of chapter 3, they've lost it. And rather than being connected to God, they're fleeing from him. They're disconnected from him. In the very beginning, it doesn't take three chapters until we recognize that this longing, this nearness of God being my good is absolutely not the way that sin makes people think about God. We now view God as one we have to flee from when our naked state before him is exposed. Have you ever felt that way? Of course you have. We're clothed as a representation, not just of the state of our bodies, but the state of our souls. We have been trying to flee from God because we are terrified of being exposed before him. Because the idea of being near to God, as for me, in certain moments of my life, the nearness of God is the absolute worst thing I could possibly envision. Have you ever had one of those moments where if God saw you when you were doing that, you would be like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm dead. You'd be Isaiah before the Lord. I have an unclean tongue. My lips are unclean. My people's lips are unclean. You are clean. I don't belong here. It's so sad, isn't it? The story of the Bible is ruined three chapters in because our greatest longing to be with God is the greatest fear that people have Right out of the gate. That's our first snapshot. That's what we see in the garden. God made a safe place for us to be with him. And we run from it. So, next real snapshot that we get of God really dwelling with his people takes place in a, a different kind of way. It takes place in a mountain. We read all the way out to Exodus chapter 19. Now, very briefly, what has happened from the people who grew up out of the garden, who grew up into the wilderness, is that everything you thought sin could do to human beings happens. Murders become murderous. Those who are rebellious against God create rebellious societies against God. God has to destroy his entire planet, practically, and start up with a new people. But those new people have new problems because they brought the same taintedness with them across the ark. 
And so now God then chooses to work with one family. You know the story of Genesis? He takes Abraham, he takes Isaac, he takes Jacob, he takes all of his sons, and he takes them and their families down, 70 of them to Egypt. Though he promised them land, though he promised them their safe space, they did exactly what Adam did. They did exactly what Eve did, and they showed they don't belong. They showed they were going to run from God. Even Jacob, in one moment, has God come down to meet with him, and he's fighting with God, not sitting and enjoying God. It's just every hero we meet is doing the exact same thing. So by the time we get into Genesis, we've skipped a good period of time. And now the Israelites have gone from being a family of 70 to a nation of like two and a half million. But they're slaves. They're far from their Eden. And so God promises to get them back there. And in fact, when he talks to Pharaoh and says, look, you got my kids. You got my son. I want you to free my son from your land so that they can come out with me and worship. And when they actually are freed, God brings them to a mountain. But here's what's interesting. This is not the first mountain. There have been many mountains. Moses met God on a mountain in the process of the Exodus story being told. But really the first mountain was that first garden. And it's interesting because I think of a garden as like kind of in a valley, right? A well-watered place where all the water would flow to it. But if you read about the Garden of Eden, what you actually hear is that there are four waters that flow from it. There are four rivers coming from this mountain, which geographically tells us water don't flow uphill. And so Eden was really kind of the first garden mountain that was set up over things. And that kind of makes space when you get back to the Tower of Babel, which was one of those weird moments in the middle of it. What were they doing? They were trying to build their own way to God because there was deep in the heart of everyone this sense that God's there. We're down here. We got to get to him. We got to make things meet. And so God gives them another picture of it in this mountain that they come to. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. See the connection there? Who's on the mountain? Well, it's God. Israel's around the mountain. Moses is going to the mountain to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on the eagle's wings, and how I brought you to myself. Now we know where the story goes, but pause for a second and envision who you have been. You have been slaves under the terror of the gods in Egypt. Pharaoh, the chief of the gods, was the ambassador of the Egyptian gods. And what did these gods do to you? They enslaved you. They killed you. It was under their blessing that your children were slaughtered, were thrown into the Nile. It was, you were their tools. They got no other concept of God except from ancient stories from days gone by. And now they're coming to a mountain and God is saying, I brought you to myself. And it's, it's, I'm doing a lot of, you know, animated movie references here. But it's a little like Megamind when he finally beats Metro Man. And everybody's coming and saying, well, we'd like to know, Megamind, what are you going to do with us? What are your intentions? And at that moment, he realizes, I have no clue. I beat the guy. 
but I will get back to you, he says. That's not God's plan here at all. God has known exactly what he wanted to do with his people. God says to them then in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. So the whole earth is mine. I mean, I proved that down in Egypt, right? I got you in a different spot. The whole earth is mine. And here's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to treasure you. I'm going to own you. I'm going to care for you. This may seem familiar to us, but, but understand how this would hit a group of slaves who are understanding for the very first time what this God wants to do with them. God perhaps has neglected them. God perhaps has ignored them. All the gods that they've known have abused them. This God wants to treasure them. This God on this mountain says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. And the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, saying, set limits for the people all around. Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it, for whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Oh, that's, that's whoa, wait. How do these two things fit together in this God? He, he is telling them, come to me. I'm going to treasure you. Don't touch my mountain or you're dead. The book of Hebrews, in recounting this moment, right, the author says the, this was an order that Israel, in, in his language, could not endure. So terrifying is the moment that that's Israel. Israel's shaking in their boots, right? They basically tell Moses in the, in the narrative of Exodus, you go up. If we keep listening to God, we're going to die. And Moses is given you know, I don't know, a lot of credit in every animated movie or every, you know, Charlton Heston going up. He looks so confident. The author of Hebrews tells us, Moses said, I tremble with fear. So here's the God. The God of the garden mountain that we lost. The God of the, God, the, God of the garden mountain. I'm not going to keep trying to do that too often. Is, is coming back to the people, inviting them to this other mountain, but the top of the mountain is practically volcanic. His words need like instruments, brass instruments to represent the terror of, and the lightning of what it sounds like to listen to God. And that God is saying, come to me and I will treasure you and I'll take care of you. Are, are we a little perplexed? This is the God who rained hail fire down on Egypt. This is the God who you needed to put blood on your doorpost so he didn't kill your firstborn son. But he's saying, come to me and let me treasure you. But obey me because I'm terrifying. I don't know if any of you had this moment when you, when you were growing up. But did you ever realize at one point that your parents had a life outside of your home? I don't know if you remember that. I, I strangely began to remember these moments where, like, my parents would talk about people they knew before me. Josiah and I were talking about this a while back. 
I, I taught for 10 years when I got out of college, when Christine and I were first married. All four of our kids were born to a teacher's family. And Josiah knows none of that. It meant nothing to him. He's grown up, and Dad's been a pastor. That's just kind of the way things have been. I had a life outside of you, boy. Isn't that just weird, right? I remember having those moments with my parents and realizing, like, wait, you, you're not just Daddy. You're, like, Sir Jim. You're... Miss Rachel, like people know you with, with authority and influence. You have history outside of this relationship we've got. That's just kind of weird for me. That's, that's God right here. I want you to feel warmly treasured by me. I want you to come to me and I want you to feel safe and terrified at the same time. And that tension is what this second snapshot introduces to us. You can be with God, but he is not a tame lion. He's good, but he's not quite safe the way that a teddy bear feels safe. This is the God of the garden mountain, and this is the God of this mountain. How are these people going to live with this God if this mountain doesn't go with them? And God says, I got a great idea, a tent. And that's our third snapshot. How is this God going to be with people, not burn them up, but live with them so that they can be safely and treasuredly in awe of him? Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put it in the ark of testimony and you shall bring in the table and you shall bring in the lampstand and you shall put in the golden altar for the incense for the ark of the testimony. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Now that's a fast summary of the fact that this was no mere camping tent. This is a tent with two rooms, a tent which had an earthly pattern representing a heavenly reality. This is a God saying to his people, no matter where you go, here's my plan. I'm not going to keep you at this mountain forever, but I'm going to bring my realities of heaven down to you so that I can live in the middle of you. I can tell you where to go and I can keep you safe while we're doing it. But don't obey. Touch the wrong stuff and you still die. Touch the wrong stuff. Do these things the wrong way and you still die. Aaron's sons learn that rule very quickly in this process. They decide to bring incense that's supposed to be for one particular piece of furniture and one particular room within the tent and they just bring some of the common incense and they die. Strange fire, the Bible calls it. Deadly mistake is what we draw from it. This tent is a safe and not safe place. Because this God is a safe and not safe God. Because to be in God's presence means that you are both welcomed and unsafe at the exact same time. To know this God is not like finding the cool kids in class and figuring out whether they like you or not. Because at the end of the day, the cool kids are just jerks. Just like you're a jerk. The cool kids are insecure, just like you're insecure. They're just you. That's not God. 
We come to God and we meet an other. We meet a holy. We meet a separate individual who says, guess what? I'm going to make you like me. Not like me, but I'm going to make you similar to me. You'll be holy like I'm holy. And if you buy into that, you need to live like you're holy. And I want you to feel the welcome, the I'm eager to treasure you welcome in the midst of that. And the rest of the Old, story, the Old Testament is the story of that tent. The tent turns into bricks at one point. But no matter where the people go throughout the book of Numbers, the tent goes with them. No matter where they go in the stories of Leviticus and, and as they make their way through, at times it feels like this tent, the, the ark inside the tent, has great power because it represents God. Hence all the heresy of Indiana Jones. But there's a mistake that the Israelites make as well. They forget the terror of God, the power of God, and they treat it like an idol like any other. And so at one point they go into a battle. They haven't been serving God. They haven't been obeying God. They haven't been living like a holy people. But they're like, oh, we, we got a holy God in our back pocket. We can make him do whatever we want. Let's go get that thing that we've been neglecting for a while. Go get it. Trot it out in front of the Philistines. And let's go beat them up with that. Because that's our nuclear weapon. We're going to go destroy the Philistines. And it gets stolen in battle. And Israel's psyche just blows up in their heads. Because the presence of God, that ark... It isn't the presence of God at all. This is a way God is being kind to dwell among his people. And Israel preferred the portrait to the reality. They preferred the trailer of the movie to the thing itself. They preferred what was supposed to be pointing to something to the very one they were supposed to be treasuring in the midst of it. They had ignored God and they were working on the ark for a while. God redeemed his ark and brought it back. But the whole point of the tent and the whole point of the temple that ultimately came from that is that this is where God would meet his people. Verse 16, back to the tent in Exodus 40. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And so he did, and the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in for washing. With Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And so Moses finished the work, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And verse 35, Moses wasn't able to go in. What in the world is happening at the end of Exodus? God says, come to the mountain. I'm going to meet you at a mountain. He meets him at a mountain, terrifies him at a mountain, then says, don't worry, I can live with you in a tent. Set up the tent. Make the tent. So here's all the stuff that's going to happen in the tent. And they set up the tent. Boom, here comes the presence of God on the tent. And Moses is like, I can't get in. Why not? Well, the weird thing is when you get to the very beginning of the book of Numbers, it says the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent. It's the book of Leviticus that happens in the middle. Because it's not just having the presence of God with the people. It's that the sacrifice that God requires needs to be part of the rhythm of the tent. The tent isn't just to represent a thing. It's supposed to represent a process. And this is entirely a spoil for next, next week's sermon. Because the second thing we absolutely know that we need more than anything isn't just the presence of God. It's a representative from God. 
It's a substitute from God, something to stand in our place before God. Like I said, that's the 24th. But however that all works, the tent works for a little while. By the beginning of the book of Numbers, Moses can go in. The tent is working. God is moving. And the people are led through the wilderness. They disobey over and over. They complain over and over. David's like, I know the problem. King David says, the problem is that it's a tent. We need a building. Well, they build the building. Not David. Solomon builds the building. And the tent becomes the temple. And it's still broken. The story of the Old Testament is the story of a broken tent. And if you want to think more about this, Sophia, somebody else are going to be talking about this later in the announcements. There's a study coming up starting in January on the book of Hebrews. That would be a deep dive into what we are glossing over briefly right now. But this broken tent through the Old Testament needs a solution. Prophet after prophet after prophet would say, hey, your sacrifices mean nothing to God. This tent thing that you're doing, it doesn't mean anything to God. He is so put off by the rhythms of your tent life with him because your hearts are so far from him. Even David got that right in the very beginning. He said, God, the sacrifices that you really want are hearts that are broken. Blood that's poured out that represents real contrition and sorrow over sin. And the Israelites were broken, broken, broken. We went from a mountain garden to Mount Sinai to Mount Zion where the temple ultimately resided and all of it just didn't seem like it worked. If you just look over the whole story of the Old Testament, you just think, can God ever really dwell with his people? Will, will it ever work that flawed people can be in the presence of God? And that's not just their story, it's ours. We ask, Lord, what can I ever really, really be with you? Or do I always have to feel ashamed and hide? Enter the fourth snapshot. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But here's the key verse. He was not the light. And that doesn't make John unique. It just makes him like every other hero of the Old Testament. Abraham was not the light. None of his boys were the light. Even Joseph, kind of the closest it seems like you get in Genesis, not the light. Moses, not the light. David, not the light. No king coming from David was the light. Every single light gets extinguished. Even the angelic beings, not the light. And so when John the Baptist comes, he's just another not the light. But we read in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, but the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own. His own people didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born, not of blood or of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And here's the summary. And the word became flesh and 
tabernacled. It's the exact same word. Jesus was the tent. Jesus was the new coming of God to the earth. He was breaking all the paradigms because everything before this had been mountain, this mountain, that mountain, this mountain. And so when Jesus meets a woman, she's like, I get it. You Jews, us Samaritans, your mountain, our mountain. What's the deal with the mountains all the time? And Jesus is like, it's not about mountains anymore. Here I am. Here is the one tenting among you. Here is the one in whom the presence of God is now residing on the earth. And when you encountered Jesus, there were moments he was terrifying. And he could scare people with fish. Peter, in the very beginning, frustrated all night long, meets Jesus, and Jesus is like, yeah, you're fishing the wrong side of the boat, you know, because I just summoned all the fish to the other side. And he pulls him in, and just immediately he's like, Isaiah, you are somebody other. You are not me. I am terrified of you. All the way to the moment when he was arrested, they were looking for this guy, and Jesus speaks two words, I am, and boom, trained soldiers are flattened down because Jesus is terrifying, and yet not. Little children came to him, and sinners felt comfortable around him, and he could call himself gentle and lowly because there had been no man like this man ever. Mountain after mountain after failed mountain, altar after altar, every attempt people made to go up to God was broken. And so God came to us. And I promise you, you want nothing more than Jesus. Every failed attempt to be respected and to be important in front of other people, you don't want that. You want to be with Jesus. Every time you've been longing for somebody else's approval, you, you don't want that. You want Jesus. Everything that's broken your heart, everything that has thrilled your soul has been just a small little echo of this greater longing because for as for you, the nearness of God is your good. And Jesus has said, here I am. This is Christmas, guys. All of those other Old Testament moments were the echoes, the previews of a coming attraction in the arrival of Jesus on the earth. So where is he? Right? We're talking about something that took place, historically speaking, 2,000 years ago. So where is he now? Why is it that we sing about present tense realities of a historical figure that was 2,000 years old if we were still alive and kicking like us on the earth today? What he's said is you got to get it. It's, it's better that I leave. And so after death took him, and after he took death down, after he was raised back to life and visited folks to show that he had power over the greatest fear that they had, he said, I'm going away and I'm sending some to you. And here's what's going to happen. The glory of God in the garden, the glory of God in the mountain, the glory of God in the bush, the glory of God in the tent, the glory of God in me will be the glory of God in you. 
And the weirdest thing happens then. 40 days after he left, God came again. So that if we're wondering, does God the Father love me? We read the story about Jesus and recognize, oh, yes, he does. Because we have proof of that in the life of Jesus. And though he left, the Holy Spirit has been sent to embody and empower us with this one reality. You are not forsaken despite your sin. You are loved by God the Father. And if we bought that, if we truly believed that, we could actually walk around this planet like little tabernacles ourselves. We could functionally be going through the darkest valleys and the highest peaks, bringing God to each corner of this planet the way we were intended to do from the garden in the very beginning. To be the ambassadors of God, made in the image of God. To be tabernacles and dwelling places of God so that no matter where you go, every place you put your feet to becomes holy ground because God goes with you. And Jesus is saying, this thing I was doing, you get to do now. That is a mind-blowing reality. Because God isn't done with us in that the last picture we have, and I am recognizing even now how much I am blowing through this. But here's the last picture. If everything else in the past leads up to Jesus, and we're saying, I, I, I get it, and I get that he's gone, and I get that the Spirit is here with me, and that I can function on the earth the way Jesus did without being God. God is with me without being perfect like Jesus. I can function as Jesus did. I can be empowered like Jesus was. But what's the end? What am, what am I waiting for? What am I looking forward to? And that was the final passage that Curtis read for us. At the end, we hear these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. How did that happen? And how will it happen? Because that's where we live, isn't it? There's a certain thing that happened in your life when you met Jesus. That this started being fulfilled in your life. There's a certain sense that you became part of the city of God. You became part of the bride of Christ. You became the fulfillment of this verse in part. So that Jesus can say that when you weep, you can be blessed because you'll actually be comforted by God. And those moments that we've had when we encounter grief and when we're afraid and we realize we're not alone because Jesus is with us through his spirit. I can look to this verse and I can say, wow, I see that you're going to do that finally because you've been doing that somewhat. And that all happened because as, the, as Peter tells his audience, Christ also suffered once 
for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or as Paul said, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's always hard to know how to close some sermons. This one's not hard. There will be the same application point three weeks in a row, and it is simply this. Do not let the tremendous, history-altering, universe-redeeming reality that the God of heaven came to earth as a man and has so altered both history and your life that nothing will be the same if he's telling the truth and your entire life is a waste if he's been lying. But since he's telling the truth, never let that reality drift far from your mind or escape far from your heart. Don't let Christmas be commonplace amidst all the carols, amidst all the familiarity. Don't forget that Jesus is with you and that the nearness of God is your good. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that your word tells so many stories to us and yet reaches out to us with one story. We're grateful, Lord, that the hope that we have is that in coming to a God who could terrify us, that the terrors of sinning against you have been met by Jesus. We're thankful that in his death we're brought to life. We're grateful that in his being abandoned, we are brought into your presence. Lord, to say it simply, we're grateful that rather than being scared of being close to you, the nearness of God could be good for us. Or may we not forget that this is what you came to accomplish through the story of Christmas. Amidst the gifts, amidst all the celebrations and gatherings, may we this week be a people who appreciate your presence, because we appreciate what Jesus did. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.